This is a prophet who is dealing with one of the most difficult problems that any prophet could be asked to deal with. And essentially, the Lord says to him, trust me, I'm not going to tell you everything to do, but I am going to tell you that everything is in my hands and it will all be okay and have faith. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. Thanks for joining us today. We'll be discussing Chapter 38, Mine Own Due Time and Way in Saints Volume 2. And today we're happy to have back with us a lead writer and literary editor for Saints, Angela Hallstrom. Welcome, Angela. I'm glad to be here. So in our chapter today, we're going to go back to Samoa. Mm -hmm. Our listeners will remember Joseph and Florence Dean, who are serving a mission there. They have started to have some success, but there's some pretty significant issues politically with mm -hmm. the government. What's going on in Samoa? So there's a civil war going on at the time, which is causing a lot of problems. There's some leaders in Samoa who are not friendly toward the church who have threatened or at least they've heard that there have been threats that people who join the church will get arrested. So after they had seen some initial success in Samoa, their baptisms plummeted because people were afraid they were going to be arrested. And then there were a number of men who left to go fight in the war, and that caused problems as well. So things started out really well, and then in a matter of a year or so, had gotten much more difficult. Uh, missionaries try a few different islands, but they make their way finally to the functioning yes. center of government. Yes. And they ask the American consul there if this is true, if the king has declared that you can't be baptized mm -hmm. into the Latter-day Saint church. Mm -hmm. And what does he tell them? He essentially says, oh, they're just bluffing. You can be baptized. It's okay. We have freedom of religion and, and you should be able to proceed. And so they were glad to hear that. They had also gone to Apia because that was the main center of trade and government and everything in Samoa because they were trying to find a man who had joined the church back during Samuel Manoa's early days there in Samoa. And he had relocated over to the island of Upalu and they were trying to find him as well to help establish the church there because that was a much bigger island and there were a lot more opportunities to spread the gospel there. And so while they were there, though, interestingly, the Civil War had been raging, and Great Britain and Germany and the United States, I think those were the three nations that also had interests. They were interested in protecting their own nation's interests during the Samoa Civil War. So there were a bunch of warships in the harbor when they arrived. Oh, and just really quickly, when they arrived... I also thought this was an interesting, quick little story. They had purchased this little boat that they could go from island to island because there were a lot of islands to travel in between in Samoa. But it's not that Joseph Dean was a very experienced sailor. And there were two other missionaries who had recently been called from the United States who went with him to go to Apia. And so when they decided they would get this little boat, they had named it the Fa'aliga, which means revelation and decided to just take off and go. And a number of people were really worried about that because they thought, well, do you even have the ability <laughs> to make this trip? But they felt that the Lord wanted them to. And it was very, very dangerous, though. And at one point, they had almost gotten to their destination, but they capsized. And some Samoans came and rescued them and spent hours getting all their stuff, hauling it back into the boat and making sure they were safe. And so after kind of a treacherous journey, they finally arrived in Apia. But as soon as they got there, a typhoon struck. And it was a horrible, horrible storm. 
And this is one example of the actual sources that I was able to read as a writer. There were incredible accounts of this left in the journals of the missionaries who were serving and being able to actually look at their words as they described it. Some of them were writing as it was happening, like writing in their journal during this actual storm. Looking out the window, they had taken shelter in this old barn, like up in the attic, while like it was rattling. They were afraid it was just going to fall down on their heads. And looking out into the bay and seeing all these giant warships that had not left in time. And so they were all just moored there in the bay. And the soldiers who were on the ships were trapped. So they could just see all these soldiers getting swept into the ocean. Big waves would crash on them and they would be swept away. All of there were men like climbing up on the riggings. So it was very traumatic to live through that and watch it. And then once the storm passed, about 200 people died in the storm. And once the storm passed, they had to get back in their boat and keep traveling to go find Ifopo, who was this other member of the church they were looking for, and then eventually go home. But it was scary because with a storm like that, you never knew if something else was was coming. It took a lot of faith and courage for them to travel that way. That would be completely terrifying. But it is so great that we do have these records that were so clear about the events. Mm -hmm. And Angela, you mentioned a little bit about your process as a writer. Can you tell us more about that? Just as a writer for Saints, what was that like taking all this information and then putting it in a format that's accessible? One thing that I love as a writer on this project is when you find record keepers who are detailed and emotionally open and expressive, it's like striking gold. Because as a writer, we can only write what we can source. We have to have a trustworthy source for anything we say. Right. For saints, it's not a historical fiction. So if we say it's a rainy day, it's because you've got a record that it's a rainy day and there's a footnote to that. Yeah. Very different than someone who might be writing fiction or a novel or whatever, where they can just put thoughts and ideas that make sense for the story. And even some historical work that we're used to, even if they say that it's historical narrative nonfiction, they take more liberties than we do. Like if you're reading a popular example like Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand, a wonderful book, but we're more constrained. We have to be very, very careful about the sources that we use. So I cannot say that someone was afraid, for example, unless in their journal they say that they were afraid. So in this particular example of this scene, it was just delightful to find all of these descriptions. There's even a line that made it into the book that the sailors they were watching out the window were hanging to the riggings like spiders. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that was word for word what wow. the, the missionary who wrote that in his journal wrote. So it's always great when you can find sources like that. So I think what you're telling me as a journal writer is if my journal entry was pretty much the same as yesterday, probably not very helpful. Not helpful. And it's the people who write things down who make history. It's so true. That's why George Q. Cannon, we talked about in our previous episode with you. I mean, he has a journal that's two and a half million words. Yeah. It's a pretty good source. We can find lots of things in there. Exactly. We have Zina and Susa and Eliza and so many others. Mm who left such good records for us, including another one of people, I know I've heard you talk about Mm -hmm. her before, and our listeners will remember, a woman by the name of Lorena Larson. Yes. Tell us about her record, what she left, and what's happening with her and her husband, Bent. So Lorena Larson, I think she's introduced in this chapter, and she is a fascinating woman and someone who I was able to spend a lot of time 
reading her story. At the time that this story opens, she is, I think, 29 years old and is the mother of three, is pregnant with her fourth child, and is the second plural wife of a man named Bent, and it's B-E-N-T. It's not a name you hear very often, but Bent Larson. And Bent had just served six months in jail for unlawful cohabitation, and after he was released, Lorena became pregnant. And even if you had already served time, you could be arrested again if you were found to be cohabitating with one of your plural wives after you were released. And I'm sure in previous episodes you have talked about the underground a little bit, probably with Ida Udall. So people went on what was called the underground, which was a way to basically hide so that you did not get arrested. And sometimes men went on the underground to hide. Sometimes women went on the underground to hide because they could be used as evidence against their husbands and they could be thrown in jail again. So they decided that Lorena needed to go on the underground. So the first option she had was to serve in the Manti Temple. Okay, this one just kind of surprised me. Yes. You don't think of (laughs) the temple as the underground witness protection program, basically. Like she's hiding out in the temple serving. Yes. But also she's pregnant and she has three kids. Yes. Exactly. Oh, my goodness. So when she leaves, and this was the unfortunate reality for a number of women who had to be on the underground, they would have to leave their children behind. And that was the most heart-wrenching part for many of them. Even if they felt like they were in good hands with their father or with their husband's other wives, it was devastating to have to leave. So Lorena went and was living with a nice woman in an apartment near the temple and serving in the temple. But she began having some medical complications and almost had a miscarriage. And so Daniel Wells, who was the Manti Temple president at that time, released her and said, you probably need to find something that isn't quite so strenuous to do and you should be with your family. So that put them in the position of like, okay, now what do we do? They were from a little town called Monroe, Utah. So she couldn't live in Monroe anymore. And part of the reason too is because there were informers in their own communities who would tip off the marshals and say, hey, this is where the second wife lives. You can go subpoena her and make her testify against her husband. So they decided to move her to another town that was about 40 miles away where no one knew her. And she could take her children with her. But they're three small children, and she's pregnant, and she doesn't know a soul, and is told no one can know who you are. So she comes up with an alias to start calling herself Hannah Thompson and tells all of her children that they should call their father Uncle Thompson if he ever comes around. Lorena's two-year-old daughter Mm -hmm. is sort of questioned by the neighbors. Yes, And can you just tell us what happens with this little girl? Well, Lorena writes in her records that one of the most difficult things was getting her two-year-old to understand that she can't call her father her father. The older kids were like four and five. They could understand a little bit better. So she would quiz her little daughter It's Uncle Thompson. It's Uncle Thompson. You know, so she would remember. And actually, these were some women that Lorena had kind of learned to trust. She hadn't told them her whole story, but they were women in the Relief Society who realized her situation. And so one day she met with them and they were just laughing and said, we asked your little girl what her name was. And she very proudly answered, Uncle Thompson. It was the best she could do. Cover blown. Yes. But what a fun little response. That has to be so confusing. Yes. But she's doing her best to keep the secret. Yes. 
And Lorraine is doing her best, too. The account from the book said she's pregnant and alone, and she's struggling every day to take care of her three children in a strange town. I can't even imagine what she's going through. But she has this dream. Can Mm -hmm. you tell us about this dream? And I love this dream. And Lorena's own words in her account of this are very powerful. She's a really good writer as well. So one of the things for Lorena was that during the first few years of her marriage, she had lived with the other wife and the family, and they actually had a good relationship. They respected each other. They got along well. But it was tight quarters in this little house with her children. So about two years previous to this scene, she had finally gotten her own home, and it was just this little adobe home, but she was just so proud of it, and she loved it so much. She goes into great detail talking about how hard she worked to make it look beautiful. And so leaving that home was very difficult for her. So then she tells of this dream that she has now that she's on the underground. In her dream, she sees that this little home that she loves so much has just gone to ruin and it's covered in weeds and she's just so dismayed and upset. So in the dream, she starts pulling up all of these weeds as fast as she can to try to clean it up. And as she's pulling, all of a sudden, and this is kind of in dream logic, but all of a sudden she notices that there's this giant tree, but it's underground. And as she clears it away, she sees that it's this beautiful tree and that it has fruit, this delicious fruit that's hanging from it. And suddenly she sees her children and she sees that they're grown, though, her grown children coming and they have baskets. And then she sees all of these other people that she discerns in the dream are her descendants. And they start filling up the baskets with this beautiful, delicious fruit. And a voice says... The underground tree brings forth very choice fruit, too. And to me, it was such a great example of how sometimes this was undoubtedly a trial. Lorena never wanted to have to live this way on the underground. It was so difficult. But it was the way that the Lord was saying to her, this is a very difficult thing that you're going through, but the strength that you have earned and the lessons that you are learning is something that can be passed along to your descendants for generations. And Lorena was a very, very spiritually gifted woman. And often at her very lowest points, the Lord would give her a dream or even a vision that would help her to get the spiritual strength she needed to do the hard things that were asked of her. So I have to tell our listeners just one little story here that in the fall of 2019, if you didn't happen to see it, there was a TV special called Making Saints a new narrative history of the church. You can see that video on our website, saints.churchjesuschrist.org. But in this video, Angela was one of our guests and she talked about Lorena Larson. And I was looking for a photograph of Lorena Larson and I found one on Family Search. And I wanted to make sure that it was okay that we used it. So I sent an email to this person on, from the website that I found the picture. And less than 24 hours later, there was a knock on my door at my office in the church history library. And Lorena Larson's Mm great-granddaughter is serving as a senior missionary. Mm -hmm. And she said, are you writing about Lorena Larson? And I said, well, we are. She's part of our story. And she had the original photograph, and she was so excited. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't help but think, there it is. There's the fruit. Yes. And it was also an example to me of how instrumental people are in gathering their own family stories Because part of the reason that we know all of this about Lorena is because, like this woman and other family members, they gathered her story. And we had it here at the Church History Library in many respects because of the work that they have done with their own family history. 
Otherwise, if people like Lorena, there's, you know, there's people like Eliza R. Snow. We know Eliza R. Snow. She was Eliza R. Snow. But trying to find the stories of average Latter-day Saints like Lorena, we depend on people to share stories and to be able to do their own family history work to help these come alive. And this was one example of how that really paid off. It was awesome. Mm -hmm. So awesome. Let's go back to Lorena here again for just a minute. Bent's made the decision to move to Colorado. Mm-hmm. thinks it's going to be safer there. And Lorena insists, I'm coming yes. and we're taking the kids with us. Mm-hmm. Tell us about this journey because yeah. there's no freeway from Cove Fort into Colorado. So what is this journey that they're going to be on? And tell us a little bit about what they experienced. Okay. The first thing I like about this story is that it shows a little bit of Lorena's personality. Um, Lorena also has a very strong personality, and she knows what she wants. It is. I love reading about it. women like this. She's great. <laughs> and so when her husband says he wants to move to Colorado because it's safer for members of the church there, the Edmonds-Tucker Act doesn't apply in a state in the same way as it does in a territory. So there were a number of Latter-day Saints who were moving to Colorado for that reason. And he wanted her to stay with her brother, but her brother was impoverished and his wife had typhoid fever. And Lorena basically said, no, I want to be with you and I'm going to be having a baby soon and I want us to be together. And so he listens to her and says, okay, let's all go together. But it was a long and treacherous journey. There were a lot of unsavory characters along the road and it's not like they were traveling in a big wagon train. They were just traveling just their own little family. And there were even places where they didn't know if they could find enough water. You know, traveling through the desert, they had to look in rocks for little pools of water. Let's listen to a little quote, in fact, from the book that describes the trail. At one point on the trail, the only available water was pooled in holes in the rocky mountainside. Bent hunted for water while Lorena slowly drove the wagon through the canyon, periodically calling his name to ensure she had not lost him in the darkness. While her little children are sleeping in the wagon, yeah. What a harrowing journey. And she's very close to giving birth as well. I can't even imagine. Mm Another part of the story in this chapter is Susa Young Gates. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about her desire to publish and to share and to write? Yes. And what does she start up in this chapter? So she is a very talented writer. And I think you may have talked in previous episodes, I'm not sure, about when she was in Hawaii wanting to start the Young Women's Journal. So she's finally getting it off the ground here and is able to have a number of very talented writers write for the journal. And this is a great example of what they called home literature at the time, where they wanted, along with many other industries that they wanted to have home industries, they also wanted to have home literature. And they were encouraged by church leaders to develop their talents as writers to be able to express their thoughts and to communicate intelligently and powerfully. And that's what the Young Women's Journal was able to do. And Susa herself wanted to make sure that the young women of the church knew that this was an opportunity for them to exercise their voice as well. This is so interesting to me because I just compare it to today, the things that we have available to share our thoughts and feelings and experiences. And a lot of that is social media. And we've been encouraged. I mean, I'm thinking especially of Elder Bednar's address where he mm-hmm. talks about flooding the earth. And we have so many opportunities to share the gospel on these online avenues. And it's just so neat that in their situation, they were doing a lot of those same things with what they had, you know, in the newspapers. And so I just think that that's such an interesting journey 
definitely. That, that and, en- and encouraging good writing as well. That's the one thing that was very important to Sousa is that she helped develop young writers to be able to hone their craft as a writer the, to approach it that way. A quote in the book says, make books yourselves that you shall not only be a credit to you and to the land of the people that produced you, but likewise a boon and benefaction to mankind. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not going to just write books for us to read. These are yeah. going to be books that lots of people should read. Yes. And society can gain from the goodness that we have to share. Yes. I love that. Well, society isn't being so kind further north of Utah Territory. Mm -hmm. In Idaho, they have implemented an oath, what becomes known as the Idaho Test Oath. Mm -hmm. What is this, and uh, how does it affect Latter-day Saints who are living in that area? So there are a number of laws um, that have been passed over the past decade in Utah Territory and in Idaho and and in the United States that were really bearing down on the saints in all sorts of difficult ways. The Edmonds Act of 1882 had prohibited people who are practicing polygamy from being able to vote, but it was only people who were practicing polygamy. But in Idaho Territory, they passed a law that essentially required people to state that they did not even belong to a church that practiced polygamy. And if they did, they were not allowed to vote. So it didn't even matter if they practiced themselves, if they even belonged to a church, they were prohibited from voting. And surprisingly, that was upheld by the Idaho Supreme Court at the time that that was legal, which is just astonishing to me that that would be happening. And a quarter of the residents of Idaho at the time were Latter-day Saints. So it effectively disenfranchised a quarter of the population. Wilford is in a very difficult situation, not only in these trials, but also just plural marriage in general. Mm -hmm. And in this chapter, we learn a stake president asks him, can you just clarify for us that they'd been giving some direction and he wanted to know, can I perform some plural marriages? Mm -hmm. And Wilford Woodruff tells him no. Yes. And I think it's so important, and I hope readers are able to feel how the pressure has just continued to ratchet up on the saints and how much they are suffering. You know, individual saints, their families are scattered and broken apart. They're living in fear that the next knock on the door is someone who's going to come and and arrest a member of their family. The church itself, after the passage of the Edmunds-Tucker Act, is being threatened even with the loss of the temples because after that was passed, any property over $50,000 could be confiscated by the government. So they were facing some very real threats. There were people who had immigrated who wanted to be citizens and were not being allowed to become citizens because they were associated with the church. So President Woodruff at the time had had some extraordinarily serious complications on his hands. And they were starting slowly to discuss and to think about, like, how public are we going to be with our practice of plural marriage, with everything that we're dealing with? And there had been some discussions. So during this conversation that takes place in the chapter where George Q. Cannon is present, George Q. Cannon was aware that there had been discussions about, you know, what are we going to do in the face of all of this pressure? However, when the stake president asks him point blank, should we stop performing all plural marriage in Utah Territory. And they really had declined at this point, and a lot of them were happening in Mexico or Canada, but there were still some plural marriages that were happening. When Wilford answered him and said, I think it is best to stop performing these marriages at this time, George Q. Cannon was shocked. Stunned. Mm -hmm. In fact, he says, 
it's the first time that anything of this kind has ever been uttered to my knowledge by one holding keys. Yes. And I just put myself in the position of the saints too. They're thinking, we've been given this commandment to practice plural marriage, Mm -hmm. to build up a righteous nation. Mm -hmm. And in connection with that answer to the stake president, Wilford Woodruff also says that he's reminded of when the saints in Jackson County, Missouri, were commanded to build a temple, Mm -hmm. but they were forced to abandon their plans when the opposition was too great. And so he likens it to this, and he says, in that case, the saint's offering was accepted. Mm -hmm. He says, so it is now with this nation, and the consequences of this will have to fall upon those who take this course to prevent our obeying this commandment. And so he's saying, we're doing the best that we can, and the consequences of it are not on us Mm -hmm. if it's not being fulfilled or practiced. I just thought that was such a powerful comparison and something that helped me understand a little bit more about what was going on at the time. Mm -hmm. One thing that I also found interesting about this particular scene is the source we have for this is George Q. Cannon's journal. He's writing about it right after it happens. And he says, during the conversation, President Woodruff expresses his opinion, what he thinks. And then he says, well, here's George Cannon. He'll tell you what he thinks. And George Cannon was usually not reluctant to express himself. He usually was quite happy to tell people what he thought. But in this case, he truly was silent. He did not know what to say. And in his journal, he wrote, I don't know what I think yet, but I do know that this is the first time that I have heard this ever uttered by someone who was holding the keys. And so it also shows George Q. Cannon's own process of coming to understand what the next steps needed to be. It is fascinating, and I would invite our listeners, again, you can go out to the George Q. Cannon journals and you can read this. In later years, people will say, oh, the manifesto was George's idea. Mm-hmm. And it is just so clear yeah. from his own journal that that is not the case. Mm-hmm. Wilford Woodruff is being advised, as you mentioned earlier, any property over $50,000 is going to be confiscated. Mm-hmm. That includes the temples. Mm-hmm. He's got lawyers telling him, you got to make a statement. You got to mm-hmm. do something. Yeah. The pressure is bearing down on him. And I think we have to play a quote here from the last of this chapter, which explains the answer that he's given and some ambiguity that he's left with. Mm-hmm. As Wilfred prayed, the Lord answered him I, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, am in your midst, he said. All that I have revealed and promised and decreed concerning the generation in which you live shall come to pass, and no power shall stay my hand. The Savior did not tell Wilford exactly what to do, but he promised that all would be well if the saints followed the Spirit. Have faith in God, the Savior said. He will not forsake you. I, the Lord, will deliver my saints from the dominion of the wicked in mine own due time and way. And that was so powerful for me when I was reading and helping to draft this chapter, because I think we have all had experiences where we have gone to the Lord in prayer and have wanted to have a very clear answer about what we're supposed to do. And I see this is a prophet who is dealing with one of the most difficult problems that any prophet could be asked to deal with. And essentially, the Lord says to him what the Lord has said to me a number of times, trust me. I'm not going to tell you everything to do, but I am going to tell you that everything is in my hands and it will all be okay and have faith. And at this point, this is what the Lord tells Wilford, and he has not shown exactly how things are going to work out, but he has faith and trusts that the Savior is beside him and he moves forward. That's such a message of comfort and hope in a very turbulent time. Mm-hmm. 
Angela, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your experiences, especially as a writer for Saints. You have such a unique perspective, and we appreciate you sharing that with us today. And we'd invite you, our listeners, to always join in on the conversation. You can email us at saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. You can always check out our latest videos and topics and more at saints.churchofjesuschrist.org. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. Thank you for listening.